happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 244 for January the 5th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we've had a little cold weather, but certainly not by Montana standards. But I'm, and I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School. But even more exciting, I'm joined by director, Dr. Jason Neifer, who allegedly, as EdTech ruler of the North, has <laughs> taken over command of a formidable organization. And I want to congratulate you on this exciting Exciting week, which I'm sure has also brought, you know, surprises and responsibilities. And who knows? I'm sure there's all kinds of aspects to, you know, leading a, a flagship organization for distance learning in the state of Montana. Sure. Well, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I am now the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School. And actually, this month is, is pretty special because it's the 12-year anniversary of not only the day that my boss, the recently retired Bob Curry, uh, walked into the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education at the University of Montana to help get this program started, but also the month I was recruited to take over uh, then what was known as the interim curriculum specialist and eventually the assistant director and curriculum director. And yeah, it's been a pretty great week already. Um, uh, awesome working with my team. I've had an opportunity to connect with a lot of our teachers. Um, and we'll be working in the next uh, couple of months to kind of do a little uh, inside thinking and soul searching to kind of take a look of where we've been and, and take a look of, of where we're going, kind of a looking forward, looking back exercise. Um, but um, that uh, uh, the, the the program continues. Uh, we we our our second semester starts in two weeks, and so um, our staff is is uh, cobbling away at getting all of our programs up and running, and we're looking forward to the semester transition in just a. a a couple of weeks, but um, I mean, I'd love to talk about my program for the hour, but I think we've got something else on the agenda. Uh, Dr. Fryer, what is the EdTech Situation Room? What is this all about? So we are a weekly podcast where we like to look at the recent technology headlines and news through an educational lens. So we comb the interwebs during the week and put all of our uh, articles that we think might be good to talk about. We don't always get to each of them on a Google Doc, and you can find that at edtechsr.com slash links. And I'll try to remember to say this at the end of the show, but this is the first night we can say the EdTech Situation Room, ladies and gentlemen, has a substack. So Jason, I talked about this, and initially here, we're just going to set this up as a place to uh, as a newsletter, get our links that we uh, talk about each week and probably the ones that we don't end up talking about as well. Um, but we may end up growing this sub stack. There's a lot of different podcasters and independent journalists and others who are using Substack with some success to build their audience. And if you follow us on Twitter or Facebook or um, YouTube or wherever you find us, uh, we appreciate that. But we invite you to join our newsletter community as we figure out what that morphs and grows into. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a bonus show or have some bonus episodes or something. But anyway, that's, that is exciting. So we are going to talk about the tech news and would it be okay if we, we start off with that article from last week, Jason? Sure. Yeah. All, kinds of... the whole hour. <laughs> all right. Yeah. We could pretty much do a show on this one. So at the end of last week's show, which of course I just published yesterday. So uh, I, another thing I think the Substack will do is encourage me to, to make sure our show gets published a little bit faster. Well, I'm, I'm going to try for Fridays for, for the Substack to go out. We'll see. But, uh, and who knows, Dr. Nifer may have a few articles or other things to put into the channel. So it'll just be full of surprises. So sign up, sign up quickly so you don't miss a moment of excitement. Um, this is an article that I mentioned last week, but it has so many different aspects that we decided to just go ahead and take it on this week. And so if you're looking, by the way, at the show notes for this week, our topics are privacy, security, Google, Apple, CES, maybe not the best title, but I call this one censorship content moderation, a couple articles there, podcasting, and then our geeks of the week. So this one is under the privacy heading, and this is from the San Francisco Chronicle on December 28th of last year of 2021 and the title is two california teachers were secretly recorded speaking about lgbtq student outreach now they're fighting for their jobs now unfortunately and maybe i can google this here in a minute i have not 
look to see if there is some follow-up to this article. Of course, schools are just getting back. We just had our first day back with students today. Um, but there's a lot of different aspects to this. Um, as I read the article, the, the teachers were giving a presentation for colleagues, and they had asked not to have this recorded. Um, as many people are aware, um, there are all kinds of reasons to be very concerned and to be reaching out um, to teenagers of all, you know, ilks and, and uh, you know, backgrounds and situations. But particularly LGBTQ youth are at high, high risk for self-harm, for suicide. Uh, support organizations are really, really important for these students. And so these teachers were talking about a support organization, and they were also talking about how they sometimes notice websites that students visit. And if a student is indicating interest in uh, a topic or an issue related to um, LGBTQ, gender identity, anything like that, that their uh, support club might talk about. And they have a school-sponsored approved club at their high school. The teachers said that they would sometimes extend a personal invitation to that student to join the club. Well, this conversation and this presentation was recorded um, and it was sent to a journalist in the area who is known for basically really focusing on polarizing political issues, um, is a conservative journalist, and that person really, you know, skewered these teachers, accusing them of impropriety and um, caused an uproar. And now there's a question of, of, of whether, you know, what's going to happen as far as their, their jobs and their positions. Um, one of the things mentioned in the article was the question of whether or not, you know, teachers can legitimately observe student um you know, web behavior, you know, websites and things like that. And and they mentioned GoGuardian, which is a really powerful and I think really good tool for a lot of reasons. But one of them can be, uh, you know, taking a look at things that your students are, are doing and, and using that for monitoring. And so in the article, to the credit of, of the journalists and, and those involved, you know, they point out that, yes, absolutely, teachers are within their rights to be able to observe. It's it's like walking around the room, right? You can walk around the room. In fact, you should walk around the room when your kids are, you know, using devices and, and on the internet and doing different things, kind of checking out and seeing what they're doing. Um, so I thought that was an important uh, piece here to, to recognize that the use of monitoring tools by schools, by teachers is very much legal and very, um, you know, defensible and, and legitimate. In, in, the, in this context of what we're talking about here. But then the other thing is we really, and this is sad, but we really should assume whenever we're giving a presentation or just we're talking, and I'm not going to say at all times, but when you're talking in a classroom, when you're giving some kind of professional development, things can be recorded and they, and they sometimes are uh, even surreptitiously, even when people request that they not be recorded um, we could probably could swap a lot of stories with a lot of teachers about, you know, situations where things have have been recorded. And, and sometimes I think that can actually be good. I think, you know, policemen uh, and and and, uh, you know, police officials having body cams and things like that. I think that's frequently a very positive thing to have things actually documented and recorded and and evidence of things. But in this case, it sounded like this was very, very unfortunate. So, Dr. Neifer, do you see any issues at all of interest possibly to our educational audience um, from this article? Well, I guess I'd start with that. Um, although I would agree that teachers have a right uh, and maybe even a responsibility to, to monitor internet traffic. I think you need to be careful about your motives in doing so. And I would say like curiosity searching, like just being curious about what they're searching about, I think crosses a line in, in, in a lot of different contexts. And um, I don't care why they're doing it. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the, uh, I did get an impression that they were curious about maybe students' mental health, for example. I would say that's not a, a terrible motive, but I still think you need to be very careful about utilizing tools in that way, in that context. And I'm not sure if I could totally defend that, uh, uh, as, as an administrator, for example, uh, a, a teacher doing that. I don't really care what the context is. 
Um, you'd have to have a reason to do so, I think, or you were just simply, uh, you know, monitoring for appropriate uh, use of, of the Internet. And I do think that, um, you know, we are in a hypersensitive environment right now from the standpoint of um, use of, of the Internet. I think the Internet is still very controversial for a lot of folks. And we, we have filtering in schools in part because, um we don't want students to see things that we find objectionable. I think the problem uh, becomes, though, that, um, you know, uh, I think the monitoring of Internet becomes the same level of controversy as filtering the Internet. And something we haven't talked about much on this podcast, but one of the things that that uh, Dr. Fryer and I connected on very early in, in, in our friendship was that we both are advocates for balanced filtering, that that there are a lot of ways that filtering can become a decision that is made maybe arbitrarily to deny students access to content that I think should be freely within their purview. And it's usually done under the notion of safety, which is certainly not uh, uh, an invalid concern. But where do you draw the line? And I think that's the problem with the context of this story is that, I, you know, I think it's easy to get pulled away by the LGBTQ plus uh, uh, component of this and then ends up in the hands of a conservative author who then turns it into a, a narrative where uh, teachers are stalking. Unfortunately, that was a word that the, um, the teacher used in this context. Um uh, uh, to join up uh, a, a club which clearly um, the authors and critics are finding objectionable or perhaps not appropriate for a public school environment. But I, for me, I think the story gets complicated the moment there are teachers uh, that are engaged in, in the behavior of just randomly checking internet searches. And then I would also say, too, that... Um, you know, you need to be super cautious when you're, whenever you're in a professional context or, uh, uh, that your words, uh, matter and that, uh, how you're presenting something or talking about things does very much matter. And, uh, as someone along with Dr. Fryer that frequently pre presents at conferences, at least we used to before COVID and, and will someday again, um, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that, that you could be recorded and that you want to make sure your advocacy is something you feel comfortable saying in, in really any context. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about the situation. I did look for a follow up to, uh, all the articles seem to be about a week old, which is the, the same age as, as the, um, uh, the, um, San Francisco Chronicle article that, that we're citing as part of this discussion. So there doesn't seem to be really an update here, but there are just so many layers of this that are, are very 2022 in their origin, right? Like this notion of kids working in a virtual environment. So everything's internet based. Um, uh, tools being utilized by students in schools to monitor students, which may or may not be uh, uh, appropriately used in this context. And, uh, you know, I think that that it goes back to none of this stuff happen or should be happening by accident. Every time you do something or utilize these tools, it should be purposeful and 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 with the the, the best nature of, of, of teaching and learning in mind. Yes. Now, something strange, and thanks to Peggy George, who's in our chat room, as often she is, she's getting a message that she has to subscribe in order to see this article. So it's weird. I'm not seeing that, and yeah, I'm not I. logged in. So I wonder if that's something weird about Peggy's location and IP address or what that is. Yeah, that's and, odd. Yeah, and Peggy tried with ad blockers didn't seem to make a difference, and I wonder if it's browser so that is that is strange. I originally had thought, hey, this is a Washington Post or a New York Times article, which, by the way, uh, I subscribe to both of those. And I do like how you have gift links where you can give a link that then when anybody clicks it, they don't have to subscribe. They can go see it. But this anyway doesn't seem to fit and fall into that category. Um, I want to suggest that this is a fantastic article to use in professional development and conversations with uh, with teachers. And one of the ways that this could be utilized um, might be in kind of a, a see, think, and wonder. We do that a lot with videos, but just to draw out the different issues um, and the different things to, to discuss here, it will be really helpful. And hopefully we'll get some follow-up to this uh, to find out kind of the next chapter. But it certainly highlights realities 
uh, for today, this could be something if you were going to use that in a professional development context that you might partner with your school psychologist, your school counselor, uh, a school administrator, you know, talking about that because there's also important privacy law involved. One of the things that is cited in the article is that California law um, does protect students' right to privacy in gender identity and in any activities that they participate in that is that is based on that. So, you know, a, a teacher would be breaking the law in California if they would out a student, um, you know, based on their, their attendance or participation in a club like this. And it is just, it's very unfortunate that uh, the conversations around uh, you know, issues related to gender identity, transgender, uh, LGBTQ uh, identity, any of that is so heated that the stakes can be really high, not only for the students, but it could also be high for the teachers. So, I mean, I want to just personally commend teachers who are involved in supporting, you know, clubs and groups that are reaching out to students. Um, you know, we have a high school senior now and, um, the, the, stress and, the stresses and pressures that have been on teens since time immemorial, you know, are, are really high and really, really big. And anybody who's had children or taught children, you know, knows that uh, technology can add some additional layers to that. Uh, I think some of that can be beneficial, um, but there can also, you know, definitely be really difficult, you know, aspects of this as well. So I just think that this article uh, could be a catalyst for, I think some really healthy and good conversation. And it may not be where at the end of the day, you're standing up and saying, this is exactly, you know, what they should have done or should not have done. But we can certainly say these are some realities. And even though, yes, this is California, this is the Bay Area. I mean, this kind of thing can probably happen in just about any school in the country. Uh, we are not currently using GoGuardian with our Chromebooks um, and <laughs> full disclosure for our students. And I, they, they, I who knows if they know this or not. Sometimes students believe you have, you know, vast IT powers that are just incredible. But, you know, we're not, we don't have a tool like that. I wish we did. Uh, when we were using iPads, we had Apple Classroom. Just the ability to simply glance and see what happens to be on a student's screen. I mean, things happen so quickly in a one-to-one -one classroom as far as things that are that are up on the screen and off. And you can't police, and we shouldn't expect teachers you know, to police student behavior at all times. But I do think that that kind of monitoring software can be really helpful. And part of what it does is it creates a perception of accountability, which is important, right? The, the, the sites that we visit and the things that we do, um, particularly when we're on school devices and we're on school-owned devices, you know, there, there is a difference there, but we can be accountable for things we do on any device. Um, those are important conversations to have. So, a good article and something that uh, if you have thoughts or feedback on this or, or maybe you find a follow up article, you know, please reach out to us um, on Twitter. Uh, shoot a link to uh, it's actually probably better to use Jason or my normal Twitter handle. We are checking the EdTech SR uh, every once in a while, but not as much as we are our regular Twitter handles. That is so weird. Peggy is still she's tried three different browsers and uh, can't. Um, all right, Peggy, I will put it into a Google Doc and put the link in. So. I will give you the link that way, but that is completely bizarre because yeah, it's weird. I don't think I'm doing anything anything different there. All right, well, as I do that, Doctor Neifer, where would you like to go next for tonight? Well, discussion? let's cover um, these other privacy uh, uh, links first. Um, I I think I may have actually tweeted this earlier. Um, the DuckDuckGo is working on a privacy focused desktop browser, and um, w one thing. Well, first of all, if you don't know what DuckDuckGo is, DuckDuckGo is an alternative search engine engine and it is a search engine that uh tries to 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 uh be effective but doesn't provide any tracking uh, uh of links and doesn't try to monetize your data you don't create accounts on duckduckdo duckduckgo and you are not um uh, uh you are not tracked according to their website and they do have a really great mobile browser on both iOS and Android that's a privacy browser and i will say that even though i'm not a huge fan of of duckduckgo 
Actually, that's not entirely true. I don't generally defer to DuckDuckGo as a browser because I find that although it, it does most of the, the standard browsing uh, just fine, if you know, day-to-day browsing, it's okay. If you really are trying to find something very uh, specific, it sometimes struggles a little bit. And I think the results aren't as effective as Google results. But their privacy browser is really interesting because it also has built-in um, uh, tracking blockers and will actually show you if if you uh, look at the settings like which websites it blocked tracking for you so if you want to do searches that you don't want come back to come back and 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 kind of haunt you later and I'm not talking about things that are even nefarious I'm talking about if you know you're shopping for uh, a tents for example and once you once you buy one you don't want to see a tent ad you know every time you open up a, a website for the you know the rest of the year which I know is certainly my experience that uh, my shopping tends to come back over and over and over again, um, or if you are searching for something that's more sensitive or personal, that you know not having that blocked is is great. Um, but the you know desktop privacy options, uh, you know you certainly you can use um, some of the more privacy focused browsers, and there are lots of Chrome derivatives and Firefox options that attempt to be more private. But I think it's really great news, and I probably would would have that on my desktop to do searching. To have a desktop-based browser is great. The one thing I would also note from uh, the Verge's article is that instead of um, uh, uh, using one of the existing browser bases, like, for example, utilizing... Um, uh, Chromium, which is the open source foundation of Chrome, or taking Firefox, which is an open source product, and evolving it into something else. They're building their own browser from the ground up. And that's super interesting because uh, that means that uh, they will have ultimate control on blocking tracking uh, uh, devices uh, that are on websites. Absolutely. We have another article in the in the show notes tonight to talk about that. So this brings up the issue of, of private browsing, um, incognito mode, private browsers, and media literacy. And, you know, when is this appropriate and needed? And is this something we want to talk to students about at some age or not? A quick story about a great example of, of incognito mode being wonderful. I got a phone call last weekend from a friend moving back to Oklahoma City. Saw on Facebook I had shared about getting fiber of AT&T. And he was confused because he was trying to figure out if they could get the fiber installed. And it says that they already have it or something else. He was getting something weird or maybe it said it wasn't available at, at where, where he lived. And um, so I immediately, because I am an AT&T customer and I know that when I've logged into a site or whatever, it sets cookies and things like that. I just immediately opened an incognito window in my Chrome browser. So that means no cookies, no save passwords, just just blank. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be 100% anonymous from my service provider and all that. But it does mean that it, it should be basically kind of a clean slate of searching. And so opened it up. Uh, went to the website, put in his address. Oh yeah, you can get AT&T fiber and told him and then explained to him how to do that. So that is a specific example of how knowing how to use incognito mode can be really helpful and, and beneficial. My other thought about this is when I was director of technology at our school uh, and initially setting up our first Chromebooks that we, you know, got in probably like 2016 maybe or something like that. Um, I decided, yeah, we're going to block incognito mode for students because why would they need to use that? And, you know, we want them to know they're being tracked and that we can see their stuff. And so anyway, I just, you know, went ahead and, and put that in the configuration in the Google Admin Console. Well, that setting has persisted after my departure as technology director. And one of the things I've become aware of because of media literacy work in the summer and this you know, conspiracies and culture wars project and, and the moon landing and just thinking about kids doing internet searches. You know, if we're asking kids, for instance, hey, do a web search for Apollo moon landing hoax. Guess what? If they're logged into their Google account, then that becomes part of their YouTube history and their search history. And that can very easily influence the videos that they're being shown later because, oh, you must be interested in conspiracies. Maybe you're going to be interested in, I don't know, QAnon or who knows what else. And so I think as teachers and educators, we need to be thoughtful and careful 
when we encourage students to do web searches, especially about a topic that might in some way be controversial. If you're just researching the Venus flytrap or let's, you know, how many, you know, uh, white rhinos are still alive in Africa or something, it's not that big of a deal. But it is true that all the searches you do and the things that you do online impact this relatively opaque cloud of data that's being collected about you. And then that does influence, you know, the, the recommended links that you see and, and those kinds of things. So anyway, that may not be something you've thought of before. It may not be something you have to be concerned about. It is important, I think, to let students know, even if they have, well, however they can get to an incognito window, whether that's on their own computer or their own phone or whatever, you know, data is still being tracked. I mean, if somebody wants to, you know, have a subpoena and, and ask the police and get a hold of their phone or see, you know, where their phone is gone, I mean, all of that kind of stuff um, is is trackable. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we teach students how to to use the Tor browser and access the dark web. I don't think that's a good idea. But I do think that it's interesting to consider how incognito mode can be an educationally viable um, tool to use. And, you know, it's, it's something that I in the past just sort of naively assumed, well, there's no educational use for that. Uh, we're going to block that for everybody, no matter how old you are. So any thoughts about that, Jason? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm thinking, I, I like my 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 I'm, my mind's going down a rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah, that's I mean that's that's totally the quandary, right? And I the big picture for me is that it's it's a shame in in 2022. Uh, by the way, I keep saying 2021, so the fact that I'm saying the correct year is good news. In 2022, that we have to teach kids about how to artfully dodge. Uh, tracking, right? Like, like this, but uh, we don't really have a choice. And in fact, a lot of adults don't get this either, right? And, um, you know, this, this ends up kind of evolving into a tech correction, uh, a discussion because the bottom line is, is that, um, uh, all these concerns, you know, that you're speaking about, are all related in the end to the fact that we've created a real monster of privacy in, in the last 25 years in the evolution of the internet. And it, it I, I do think that, that relief is coming and I do think that we are, are starting to have some of these tough conversations. I just don't think it's going to be fast enough for us to not, uh, to, to not, uh, lose a lot in, in the process. And so the best way to deal with that is to, teach your students if you're in context of a teacher, but members of your family, your friends, uh, people you know from community organization, uh, your, your church, your uh, um, uh, 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 local sports teams that you follow, uh, fans that you follow, people that are in your community. Like, you know, obviously these aren't discussions that you're going to have you know, uh, uh, in casual conversation, but letting people know that there are ways to safely use, uh, your devices in, in this context, uh, you know, uh, explaining that, that, that a privacy browser might be really useful when you're searching for sensitive topics or, or especially when you're shopping. Um, and then thinking about, you know, the, the implications of, of all this for your students and yourself, I think is, is extremely important. And, you know, there's no shortage of controversial uh, things uh, about the internet, and as we're talking about schools, you mentioned Wes the the notion of you know searching for for uh, 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 moon landing conspiracies, and then suddenly getting sucked into a uh, kind of conspiracy world, which the internet is full of of that. I really do think that that uh, it's an important part of the way you should be designing lessons, the way you should be engaging with the Internet and, you know, having a little bit of, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, it's not paranoia. It's 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 careful, uh, um, um, uh, careful. Um, uh, 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 well, maybe it's careful paranoia to, to when you approach any of those pieces. Well, these are good conversations. Surveillance capitalism is what we're talking about here that we have yeah. as a, a predominant model. And I think, 
considering developmentally? I don't know if NCCE or ISTE, you know, has taken this on, you know, for standards. When do we help students and to what degree do we help students, you know, understand that surveillance capitalism is the economic model that is undergirding a great deal of the social web today? And how does that overlay with rights and responsibilities? Um, you know, the, yeah. man, those are important issues. So, yeah, when we talk about privacy, we talk about digital citizenship. One more article that we have, and this one is a gift link for the Washington Post. So, Peggy, hopefully you will not have a trouble on anybody else. This is like, oh, gosh, that's a super long link, though. I'm going to have to shorten that link, I think, because it got <laughs> okay. All right. So the headline, and I'll, I'll send the, I'll, I'll do the shortened link here in a second to the gift link. Uh, this is Washington Post on, uh, December 22nd, right before Christmas. Americans widely distrust Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram with their data. Poll finds pulled between not trusting some tech companies and still wanting to use their products. People look to government regulation, according to a Washington Post Shar school poll. So, you know, Listening to this poll and this kind of article, it kind of echoes a little bit um, what Jason is saying in terms of optimism that, yeah, it looks like, you know, we're going to um, have some some regulation and there's going to be, you know, some some change in the landscape. Um, I don't know. I think I'm a little bit more pessimistic just because I'm more broadly pessimistic about political change in the United States yeah, and this, right this issue along with, you know, healthcare or immigration or gun control or all kinds of things. It just, it just doesn't seem like meaningful legislation and, and meaningful action can be taken. Um, I'm really personally interested in the privacy agenda. I strongly, strongly believe that we need some updated privacy laws in the United States. Um, I want to more actively seek out, and I think we might talk about an EFF Google article, actually, that, that kind of touches on some of this. Like, what are good you know, advocacy platforms for folks who are really concerned about privacy, who's proposing right. reasonable privacy legislation and how can we get behind it? How can we help our own, you know, um, rep elected representatives know about it, know about our support for it, et cetera. And so I think that's something I want to, you know, be supporting more in the future, but you know, this kind of article, which we're, we're seeing and we, we have seen uh, with more frequency, especially I think since, uh, Francis Haugen, the former Facebook employee, you know, whistleblower, you know, testified before Congress, you know, towards the end of last year. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about is this going to lead to some kind of change? The uh, social dilemma was the Netflix documentary that was released last fall and the Center for Humane Technology is one of several organizations really working to try and keep this at the forefront of people's attention so that we'll see, you know, some meaningful change and it won't be just like, yeah, well, another data breach. Yeah. Well, another privacy issue, another day, another dollar, you know, another fine for the companies, you know, but we're just going to keep on with businesses as, as usual. So um, the fact though, that perceptions are shifting so much, um, you know, could mean that if we have some politicians and interest groups that propose some legislation, that people really might get behind it and support it. And we do have, for different reasons, you know, across both aisles of the partisan uh, divide here in the United States between Republicans and Democrats, we have folks, you know, wanting to have some greater regulation on tech companies, some more protection for individuals, um, different reasons that people are, are wanting those things. But Perhaps there is reason for some optimism. Um, but I think these, again, are great topics to talk about with students. Last last week's show, we talked about, you know, free speech and, and how that needs to be situated within civics and discussions about rights and responsibilities in government class. Um, I think that the role of, of regulation and the, the rights that we have uh, or want to have or perceive that we have might not have, uh, if you read the law, those are all great things to be talking with students about and students could be doing projects and doing research um, about those kinds of things. So I know we've got a junior level American history, American government or American history and American literature class that has launched this year. And big tech was their first big unit that they taught that, that they, wow. you know, they tackled. And it was a great one to, to tie into, you know, both literature and 
prognostications of future dystopias and uh, you know, surveillance and things like that. And then just, you know, current events of, of what people are doing now and how things are being used and possibly how, you know, government regulation should step in or, or how we also might want to make changes individually about the platforms that we use or don't use and the ways that we use them so that we can be doing things in a more informed and not, you know, hope maybe less harmful way. Yep. All right, we have taken half the show with our with our <laughs> privacy articles, but hey, you know what? Sometimes that's how we roll. Um, if we could, I want I'd like to go to that Google article. We've got a, actually a number of great Google articles today. Yeah. Um, let's just hit a couple fast ones actually, and then we'll do this. Chrome users beware. Uh, so this is Google Workspace blog, November sixteenth. You can now host Google Meet meetings with up to five hundred participants, and if you don't follow, Google has a great um, update uh, newsletter. It's like a video. Anyway, each month, it's like Google EDU in 90 seconds. And they're sometimes longer than 90 seconds. But I watched the one for December, and that's where um, I heard about that. So that's exciting. You have to be a subscriber, though, to at least the first tier of the paid service. We've talked about on the show before that you know Google has reached a, a tipping point that I think maybe some people had anticipated for a long time, which was they're not going to give away everything for free forever. You can still get free Google Drive and free Gmail and all that as a school, but there are certain services that are now you know going to be premium. Um, and so when you are at that tier above, you know the, that first paying tier, uh, then that allows you to have these large Google Meet meetings. So that could you know impact. Uh, your school. Um, I'm not actually sure. I should know this. What the previous? I think it was the previous limit fifty. Or do you know, Jason? Did you run into that? that um, before we, we haven't. I I, I want to say it was even like as high as like a hundred and fifty. But oh, was it? Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, but five hundred is is both really impressive and probably not all that useful all the time. But you know, one could say that that uh, you could host, for example, if you you did have a virtual schooling day or week for. For whatever reason, if you wanted to hold like a class meeting or something, right, like all the yeah. freshmen come uh, and to that piece, it'd be kind of fun to do uh, uh, if nothing else. This one, here's another Google update. This was Google 9 to 5 on November 5th. Google Assistant no longer offers your news update audio digest. This is a little bit less schooly uh, ed tech as it is just personal. But I love my Google Assistant. I say, you know, hey, G, what's the news often? And I noticed in the last two months, like, I'm not getting the same rundown of news or whatever, what's going on. So, of course, I Googled it. Um, and for some reason, I don't know why they've done this, uh, they're not offering this your news update. And so you can still play podcasts, but this was a really slick feature where you could say, hey, I like to listen to CNET and, you know, NPR and the BBC, World Service or whatever. And then it would give you those latest news uh, pub, you know, I don't know, maybe this has something to do with other tech correction stuff going on with, you know, journalism and the rebroadcast or whatever. I don't know, but I was personally really, really bummed by that. Have you used that feature on You're you're more of a Madame A guy now, right? Yeah, I am a more Madame A guy. We, I think we have a, a Google device or two in the house. Um, but I, I do think that, I mean, that's the example of something that, I mean, it, it feels a little futuristic, but having that news summary, I think is a, is a, is kind of a cool feature. And I'm, I'm 99% sure, uh, because you used to be able to say good morning to, uh, yes. Google's, uh, device, right? I was just thinking, I can't remember, I can't remember how you access it. It's no, you can do it that way too. Two, yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it would and say, that's, hey, uh, that's, and that's, that's interesting. Although I'm just assuming that if they're depreciating it, it wasn't aggressively used, but that's not right. always Google standard. So yeah. I was also bummed that you can't, uh, share a Flickr album anymore in ambient mode on a Google Chromecast device, which I've got, you know, hundreds of Flickr albums. So I've, anyway, I've sent feedback about that. Okay. And then third Google article, and then I'll pass the torch. Well, we'll probably, you'll probably want to respond to this one. This is pretty fascinating. The EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation on December 9th, um, published an article by Daily Barnett called Chrome Users Beware Manifest V3 is Deceitful and Threatening. Now we have talked about this on the show before there are different kinds of standards that are used for tracking people and collecting, again, this massively ginormous 
you know, largely opaque cloud of data that data brokers have and, and, and sell. And this is, this is how our data is monetized is that people collect this, this stuff about us and they, you know, probably combine it not only on our email address, but on our, our cell phone numbers, maybe not a social, but who knows, there's an identifying key. And then they're able to say, Hey, you know what, if you want to market up to, um, you know, people that are, that are interested in warm, cozy blankets. Well, Hey, we know, you know, West Fryer is interested in that. And, and I see an ad for that or whatever. So Google has been working through the Chrome browser on a new system to do this. I'm going to do my best to try and to share what I understand. We call this manifest V3. And the first sentence of this article says it's Google's soon to be definitive basket of changes to the world of web browser extensions. And they're saying this is better because of privacy, security and performance. But the, the author here and they're speaking for the EFF says this is a raw deal, quote unquote, for consumers. And because there's a conflict of interest that Google controls both the browser and then also the Internet advertising network. So what this would essentially do is in Chrome, but they're trying to get this, you know, adopted more broadly, throw out these other standards that other kinds of data brokers have used for these cookies and other ways of tracking user behavior across the web and require that they use Google's method. But one of the things, if I'm reading this right, is that it will break many of the extensions which block advertising today. Ublock Origin is my favorite web blocker. Ben Wilkoff, I think, might have been the guy that first told me about that years ago. Use it all the time. Tell my kids about it. It's very lightweight. It doesn't have malware. And I mean, looking at the web with all the ads or basically all the ads blocked is a incredibly different experience than yes. a full on, you know, watch Ready Player One at the vision of whatever that company was that wanted to, you know, fill fill the virtual reality world with with ads on every square inch. So I, the article here is saying dump Chrome. This is a reason to go with Firefox. I'm not ready to do that yet. But I certainly respect the opinions of the EFF. And when the EFF is coming out and saying, hey, this is bad for consumers, this is this is terrible. I mean, I'm really I'm really paying attention. So how do you how do you read this and see this, Dr. Niver? Um, well. Uh... <laughs> I'm stumping you with a few questions. You are. Tonight, well, <laughs> and there's just so much to say about all this stuff, right? I, I guess the thing I would start with is I, I want to key in on one of your comments, Wes, that the if you don't have an ad blocker on, the internet is a vastly different experience. And I'll give you a primary example of this. Uh newspaper websites, and I, I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily the large national ones, but Especially if, if you know, I, I think that 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 local and regional newspapers tend to use probably the same, you know, seven, eight, or nine content management systems to deliver their services. But if you go to one of the Montana uh, larger newspapers, most of which are owned by Lee Enterprise, and you try to uh, you you try to go to that webpage without a blocker, it is basically unusable, and it's because the advertise advertisements themselves. Um, are so overwhelming in, in, in their presence on the page, it's nearly impossible to even see, uh, what, what kind of, of, of technology that, um, uh, I'm sorry, what kind of articles are offered on that page? And, and, then, and distinguishing between what's an ad and what's a real extra link or whatever, it's very conflated and confusing if you, yeah. if you don't have an ad blocker on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, 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 uh, well, and, and, and if you are in, in the land of ad blockers and you haven't unblocked on, let's say your local newspaper recently, I mean, I just, I, I just did this right now to, to be able to speak of this with a little more, uh, authority, but I went to a local newspaper that, um, I actually, uh, subscribe to on and off. It's not my, my local, local newspaper, but a prominent Montana newspaper that I've subscribed to, uh, in the recent past. Um, and I turned the ad blocker off and over, well, over half of the page now has been taken over by advertisements. And, um, and, and by the way, the ad blocker wasn't 100% effective, um, uh, either that when I went to, uh, 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 
to originally go to the page, there were some some uh, banner ads that were available to me there. So one of the things that um, that I, I think that it's just really disappointing about about breaking those kinds of technologies is that um, it, the web is 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 nearly unusable with the way advertising is utilized now, and, and and it goes back to the fact that I, I think that we've been riding for far too long on the free nature of of the internet. That uh, I'm not saying that every service necessarily has to be a pay for service, although I would love to be in the land where we could come up with some kind of micro uh, transaction to where you know if you use a website, you know you have an uh, like, or running total or you have credit that you know, even a uh, minuscule amounts of credit uh, uh, could be utilized, uh, you know, with, with your blessing and with your permission uh, in exchange for no advertising, because that's what, a lot of times the amount of money that goes to websites uh, from advertising is a relatively minuscule amount of money. And just imagine for a moment if you could pay that directly uh, to a website as opposed to having your personal data traded as part of that process. But to the larger issue for a moment about kind of, uh, you know, moving towards this thing. I don't, I mean, I'm pretty techie. Dr. Fryer's pretty techie. You know, we're, we're nerdy guys that, that stay pretty informed about that stuff. I couldn't tell you exactly what this change is, nor could I articulate why it breaks things. I've read four or five articles on this. We talked about this a little bit earlier in 2021 too, I believe. And the bottom line is, is the fact that we can't explain it and it's going to be, you know, I'm not saying we're the smartest, we're smartest guys on earth. We're decently bright, but you know, maybe someone uh, that that it works in this space could better articulate to it. But the fact that I, I I read these articles and I can't tell you what this changes or why it breaks things, I think it's really problematic. And I trust the EFF when they make noises about things, right? Like they are very paranoid, but we need someone to be paranoid in this space. So I'm glad it's, it's these folks that do it. I don't always agree with their conclusions about things, but factually they're way more on it than they are not. And, and, and when they are not, they, they also issue me a culpus. So it's not, you know, it's, I, I it's an organization I trust. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I, I have a lot of trust in Google. It's been less in the last five years than maybe it was in the previous 15. But I really hope that that they're not using uh, they're not using this to create even a larger monopoly on people's data. I just think that's a really bad call. And, you know, you have a lot of smart people working for your organization. Let's work together to find a way to fund the Internet without uh, sacrificing our privacy and our data. And another reason to maybe be a little pessimistic about government regulation saving us from this or any other kind of tech thing is that the velocity that this stuff moves at and the yeah. the slowness with which, you know, legislators seem to approach tech and just understanding it. It just it's it really is something I think that, yes, pressure by consumer groups and and, uh, you know, different organizations has an impact Um but it's just it's it's hard to to imagine you know government regulation changing this any any time <laughs> soon. So let's hope that ad blockers are not. I mean, this is one of the reasons why. In fact, I got I think I'm gonna have a conversation later this week with uh, another area educator who their school's on iPads and they know we did Chromebooks and wants to have a dialogue about that. I mean, honestly, the fact that we can block ads really really well today on the Chromebook is one reason I really like using, you know, the Chromebook instructionally, you know, versus the iPad. Um, you know, you don't have to be picking all these websites that have ads, but there are, anyway, it, it's just diff big differences in experiences. Uh, and, and this, and I would say this is an educational connection to this. If you haven't done this with your students, as far as looking at an assignment, if you're viewing the web through an ad blocker, and you're sending something to students, it's worth turning it off and looking at what the difference is. I've had that happen in, in some lessons, like, wait a minute, what are you looking at there? What? And then realizing, oh my God, because we don't force our kids to, to have extensions installed like uBlock Origin. I tell them about it and encourage them. And usually a lot of them put it on when I explain what it is, but we don't force them to. And so I've had that experience in class accidentally where it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that website was so, you know, unusable because like yeah. you said, Jason, of, of all the ads. Um, so it's just, it's, it's something where we might be making assumptions that everyone's seeing the same web that we're seeing. And that is definitely not the case if you're using an ad blocker um, and somebody is not. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Hey, uh, we have some more Google articles, but where else do you want to go? I've kind of 
taking charge of a lot of the articles tonight. So we've got 10 um, minutes. <laughs> yeah. Let me, um, uh, let me do quick, two quick Google articles. One of them is, uh, Chrome and Box reported, I think it was today that CES is going on. Um, it's much more muted this year because most people didn't show up. A lot of people are participating virtually. Um, the other problem is, is that, you know, CES, uh, the consumer electronic show, sorry to be a uh, jargony, uh, the computer electronic show, uh, which happens in Las Vegas at the beginning of every year. Um, it, it, and, and usually it's a, it's a good preview on what's to come. But the problem with it is, is that a lot of things here are, are, uh, uh, dreams at best. Sometimes they'll show up with equipment that's very interesting. And if it doesn't get the, the, if it doesn't get the uh, audience reaction they're hoping to get, or in some cases, if, uh, they can't get the manufacturing uh, right that the, that these become, uh, uh, what's sometimes referred to as software as vaporware. It, 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 it doesn't, didn't really exist in the first place. Um, but one of the things that, that is being talked about is that Google made some announcements at CES. And one of the things they're going to start working on, so we've talked about a little bit in the past, uh, is they're trying to get Android to work better, um, uh, 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 amongst devices, and this was also include, include, include Chromebooks and a better together is the, is the name of their initiative. Um, an example of a better together initiative is that if you get on a Chromebook and you have an Android phone and they're both relatively new, then you can automatically hotspot to your cell phone from your Chromebook. And it's not quite as elegant as the Apple version of that same technology. Um, although I will say that the Apple version isn't as consistent either as, as I wanted. It's a, it's a little ham handed sometimes to do it, not quite as one button click as I want it to be, but they're working on things like that. So for example, handing calls off between your Chromebook and your Android phone or or pairing a, a, a Bluetooth device um, on one of, of those two and then having it seamlessly move from one or the other, which is one of the wonderful powers of um, the AirPods on uh, the Apple side is that they automatically, uh, once you, you uh, uh, pair them to any of your devices, Apple devices, they're now available on all Apple devices. And it can seamlessly, although it, it's still a little wonky, move from device to device. So I think that's really interesting, and it's glad to see that, that Google's working on the ecosystem there because I think that's one of the, the biggest powers of the Apple stuff. And then one other uh, video that's actually, and I just I tweeted this out earlier, didn't notice it was uh, six months ago, uh, and I hope we didn't already talk about this, but um, there's a really another great article that has a video um, from Chrome Unbox talking about how cheap Chrome devices are getting better and better. And some of the newer chips available, so I'm talking about like the Intel Celeron N5000 and now N6000 series, are themselves uh, fast enough that even as a power user, you may be able to use a relatively low-end Chrome device for 100 200 bucks um, uh, as a daily driver, uh, even as a power user. And one of my biggest criticisms of the Chrome operating system environment has been that just because you can make a low-end device that kind of works doesn't mean you should make a lower-end device that kind of works. But that's one, been one of the powers of implementation of Chromebooks in schools is that you could truly go one-to-one -one or buy a classroom sets of these devices for a lot uh, uh, less money than their Microsoft or, or Mac counterparts. And since they're guaranteed to get updates for eight years, you know, that that's a pretty solid investment. But the problem with that is, is that some of those low-end devices are, frankly, unusable. And even though the Chrome operating system is extremely minimalistic in, in its requirements, that doesn't mean it's always the best experience. So I just wanted to note that, and I know there are a lot of chip announcements that are going to be happening in CES this week. And uh, both uh, the About Chromebook folks, Kevin Tofel about Chromebooks, and um, the folks at Chrome Unbox seem to be keeping an eye on those announcements this week um, uh, to, to see where the next direction of Chromebooks is going. I do think that there may be reasonably priced Chromebooks that are fast enough that even power users or maybe even uh, uh, your advanced students that are using their 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 Chromebooks, uh, uh, you know, uh, as as a power user, might have a great experience even with lower end machines. Would you mind picking up that podcasting 
article you were looking Yeah, at. this one's another really interesting one, too, and talk about another rabbit hole. Um, uh, the Verge uh, reported yesterday, and I think it's part of uh, a really great newsletter called Hot Pod. Um, used to be an independent newsletter and was relocated to The Verge, um, and I think it was bought out maybe a couple of months ago. But Ashley Carmen of The Verge and Hot Pod um, talks about how uh, the advertising, uh, dynamic advertising revolution has shown up in podcasting, but unfortunately it's been a really, really, really bumpy ride. And we've talked about advertising a lot on, uh, uh, on our show in regards to podcasting, not because we're going to be advertising, um, uh, anytime soon, but because it definitely is an impact on the experience. And I love, podcasting so much and i think the podcasting content is so amazing not only personally but i think also for k-12 classrooms that i really want to see podcasting succeed but if there's no way to make money off of podcasting you can't expect creators to continue to make a podcast solely out of the goodness of their heart i guess well i mean we do our podcast right we do that right (laughs) so we do that really out of soul i haven't seen that huge uh, sponsorship check show up from anyone yet um uh, by the way, uh, 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 private message me vendors if you want to, to send your stuff for me to review. So um, the the bottom line is is that uh, you know the best way to do this uh, and and there's trade offs here with your privacy is to have dynamically inserted ads into content. And the problem is we're heading very aggressively, very aggressively in that direction, but the technology is relatively unproven. And there was an example of this. There is a, and I think this was on, um, uh, 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 I think this was on the Spotify uh, podcast ad network, otherwise known as Span, but apparently um, well, they gave two examples. Um, uh, a science podcaster um, uh, uh, wanted to, or, or has a science podcast, and specifically uh, barred uh, ads from oil and gas companies. Didn't think they were appropriate. Didn't want them. And sure enough, um, uh, uh, has his his ad and or has his podcast and. Uh, two companies, BP and ExxonMobil, were inserted into um, this podcaster's program, and um, uh, uh, he or she was obviously very angry and went and looked, uh, asked about it. As it turns out, these ads were um, uh, 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 filed under other, and uh, I'm sorry, elections and other, and not um in 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 the appropriate categories of, of oil and gas companies and then perhaps more troubling is that um um there was a, a a podcast aimed at kids where uh an ad for the the television program the sex lives of college girls um uh was dynamically inserted which is also uh you know uh, obviously hugely problematic and you know, it, it goes back to the fact that, you know, it's just not, it's just not, you know, 25 years ago television anymore, right? Like there isn't, uh, a lot of these decisions get made dynamically by a logarithms and um, by, um, you know, kind of mass content uh, production houses. And I, you know, we have to be careful, right? And and I know that, um, you know, I've seen ads, uh, well, this was, it's been a little while since I've been in a K-12 classroom, um, but I've certainly seen ads before uh, that made me blush a little bit back on, in YouTube days when uh, I would use a YouTube ad in the classroom. And, you know, um, uh, I, the bottom line is, is that the controls aren't very good. And uh, I think it, it, I don't know if it risks podcasting as much as it is just makes it complicated, but I thought it was a really interesting article about that particular uh, question. Absolutely. Uh, Peggy George is mentioning a podcast she loves called sisters in law that has four female lawyers and mentioning how she loves how they personalize the ads. And I, I like that too. I've enjoyed this weird. Are you hearing what echo feedback just started? That's weird. Um, okay, it stopped. StreamYard's like, hey, you're almost to the hour. Maybe that was my, my clue. <laughs> um, I, some of my favorite podcasts as well, I really don't mind the ads. Um, um, no Dumb Questions, which is by 
uh, one of the co-hosts is Destin, who does the Smarter Everyday podcast. They do a great job of that. And I think they, you know, they, cause they hand select the, the products that they do and they are, are clever. And anyway, I just kind of like enjoy the ads, which by the way is the dream of advertisers is that you're going to reach people that actually want to hear that message and hear it in a way that, that people, you know, like to hear it. This reminds of last week and I named the show or try to, you know, find a little cute three word names called it bad idea Alexa algorithmically madam a um you know recommended this very dangerous challenge that involved electrical plugs and sparks and fires to people and it was something that someone had coded and it went awry and so what you're talking about here with podcasting ads going bad is kind of the the same sort of thing is where an algorithm is set up and there's not enough you know human involvement in checking it i mean there is to the extent that hey we got this has been discovered and and hopefully things have been been fixed but there's always going to be ways for people to um you know hack systems and and change things sometimes they're going to be unintended consequences Sometimes it might be people purposefully, you know, choosing a different category or whatever and, you know, getting getting their ad in there or, or whatever. So yep. um, I do hope on that note that we, you know, we'll do a little iteration and exploration here. Setting up the Substack is, uh, you know, going to be an experiment. We'll kind of we'll kind of see. I mean, I, I pay pay a little hosting cost every uh, month and uh, was uh, I'm, I'm actually still dealing with a little bit of that uh, residual hack. Uh, you know, when you have like 30 or 40 websites on a virtual private server and the server itself gets hacked, kind of yucky. So anyway, um, it's not a bad thing to think about, you know, how to to possibly we're not going to be quitting our day jobs, but, you know, how we might uh, monetize in, in some small way this podcast and, you know. Love podcasts. I'm so, so thankful mm-hmm. for podcasts. Our daughter, who's 18, has started to get into listening to some different podcasts. It's just such a great format. And I think that it's just still in the, the beginning days, right? I think the if you think about the internet and those early days of Web 2.0 and not very many people were blogging, you know, there's a, you know, upsides and downsides to having so many more people involved on the web. Uh, but much like, you know, the web today and of, of user created content is radically different than it was, let's say, in the, the mid 2000s. Um, I think podcasting is still in a very, very early stage. And so, you know, the algorithms are going to continue to work on. And I think that there's a really good place for for advertising. Um, I think it can it can go too far and it can be crazy and bad. Um, watch Ready Player One if you want to see a fictional you know, view of that dystopian advertising environment of what that can look like. And maybe Facebook's building it today with Oculus. Who knows? But um, yeah, that's the metaverse. Right. So hopefully the metaverse is not going to be completely filled with ads. Um, so these are. Good issues to discuss. But alas, Dr. Neifer, I think we have gone past the one hour mark and we probably should share some geeks of the week and get out of here so we don't keep people too much longer than the hour that normally they expect from us. Yep, that's a good call. Uh, mine's really quick. It's it's uh, uh it's it's an amusement more than anything else. Mapcrunch.com. Mapcrunch, you go to it and it will send you to a randomly selected uh, Google Street View. So uh, I think it's Google Street View. I, I, I will say I, I especially wish this had been around um, um, uh, a, a little more clearly when I was teaching social studies uh, back in the day, particularly world geography. I think it'd be wonderful to drop in on Street View in places around the world when talking about uh, other locations. But this will send you to literally a random spot um, on Street View. We'll tell you the location as well. Um, but I, I, it's, it's, it's worth, uh, well, I've probably spent an hour on it last week. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a good, good, clean, um, uh, amusement fun on the internet. Awesome. I'll have to share that with our social studies teachers. Um, I've got two quick ones. The Webb Space Telescope finally launched on Christmas Day, and it is incredible. I don't know if you realize, but I did today that the Hubble Space Telescope is over 30 years old now, and Webb is the new advanced version of Hubble that's going to be vastly better. And there's just incredible resources uh, about it. So I've been talking to my fifth and sixth graders this week about that. Um, have a bunch of links to some different videos and would encourage you not only to check those out, but share them as well. Because, hey, man, this is super cool space stuff, man. Rocket scientists and literally teams of hundreds, if not thousands, but hundreds and hundreds of 
of scientists have been working years and years, and we've been spending billions of dollars to get this space telescope uh, in, you know, in orbit. And there was like 300 independent, like single points of failure that could have gone wrong. And this last week, they said, you know, they've gotten through about 75% of this. I think they rolled out this massive five layer sun shield, which is the size of a tennis court. And that thing just deployed. And anyway, it is just, it's just awesome. And then uh, my last one, if I can get back to my links, um, is a great podcast. Uh, now, if you're wanting to be inspired and get really optimistic about the future, you can just skip this one. Uh, but this is from the Vox Conversations podcast, and it's called uh, Why Fascism Isn't, Why Fascism in America Isn't Going Away. And so this is an interview with Jason Stanley, who is an author. Uh, he's at Yale University. Uh, he wrote a book called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them that was published in 2018. So it was fantastic and really connected some dots for me related to um, politics and, and the ways that, you know, technologies are, are used and, and just a lot of the things that we see happening in the political landscape, both reflected on social media and in other places. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. Jason, where can people find your ideas and shared thoughts when we're not here together on a Wednesday night. Best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And yourself, sir. I am W Fryer on Twitter and my website, Westfryer.com, has been updated as I am still applying for some jobs and hope to have an announcement as Dr. Neifer has been able to share recently, uh, perhaps about some new employment and a new, uh, yeah, maybe a new place for us to live. We, we, we are seeking new adventures this year. So you have been listening to the EdTech Situation Room. We want to encourage you to subscribe to our Substack, which you can find at edtechsr.substack.com. But that link and all our other links to YouTube and Twitter and our Facebook page, you can find them all at edtechsr.com, where you'll also find small 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions of our podcast, along with a smaller and compressed video version. But you can find us anywhere you find podcasts curated. And we encourage you to not only check out the show notes of this episode, but also the other links that we have. But hey, Substack is now going to be an easy way to get those in your inbox every week. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and keep listening to podcasts. Good night.